Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Around the world, the time is ripe for UBI. If I can steal Victor Hugo's words, no force on earth can stop an idea whose time has come. On May 4th, First Minister of Scotland Nicola Sturgeon said, the time has come for universal basic income in Scotland. It seems like the economic crisis caused by the COVID-19 health crisis we are all living through around the world has ripened the fruit, the apple that is UBI, enough for it to fall from the tree. Now, are we going to take a bite is the question. There was a string of protests around the world in 2019, and I did an episode on that, do go check it out, of people taking to the streets in Chile, Lebanon, Venezuela, Iraq, demanding transparency and an end to corruption. This indicates that we have been living through a global pandemic long before coronavirus crippled our communities with its invisible cloak. A pandemic of economic vulnerability, one of a creaky social security welfare system, one of overwork and underpay, one of stinky corruption, one of a few billionaires sleeping on more wealth than the bottom half of the world. It is being projected that COVID-19 could worsen income inequality levels around the world for the first time since 1990. Let's not forget that eliminating poverty is the number one of 17 sustainable goals of the United Nations. There are few places in the world where poverty is so starkly unequal and inescapable as in India, where some of the richest and certainly some of the poorest live side by side. Currently, 60% of India's population, or an estimated 812 million people, live below poverty line. World Bank draws that line at $3.2 for middle to low income countries. According to the United Nations University World Institute for Development Economics Research, 104 million more people in India could fall below the poverty line. So as the conversation around unconditional or universal basic income gathers momentum around the world, I'm back with another episode on the topic, this time focusing on India, and I am very excited to have Sarath Davila with us today. Sarath is one of the leading voices of UBI in India and globally. He's the coordinator of India Network for Basic Income and also the vice president of Basic Income Earth Network. Sarath, thanks so much for joining me on the Nth Dimension today. My pleasure. My pleasure, Shreya. So before you listen any further, just a post-production note. Sarth and I began talking before we actually hit the record button. The conversation was going superbly. I hit the record button in the middle of our conversation. So our conversation does start off abruptly. If you do listen right from the beginning, the context is that Sarth, along with his UBI team in India, are helping to get relief to workers in Telangana. And some people are just taking advantage of that system. And that's where you begin. If you wish to start formally, then I would skip to about 15 minutes of the conversation. So mm-hmm. contractors also use our helpline and call us. So when we, when we, when we, see, you can make out, isn't it? 
you can make out from the voice that you're not a worker. You're a, you're a, your voice is also an output of what you eat and what you drink, isn't it? So people who eat well, they speak in a different way and who don't eat well, <laughs> speak in a different way. So we are used to the voice of the migrant worker. When the voice changes, they say, ah, sir, ছত্তিশগড় you pay them like some 10000 or 12000 or 15000 in advance and then you extract labor so mankind has not evolved in that sense actually it's a kind of a slavery invisible oh definitely slavery. yeah i guess people will extract as far as they can yeah but the thing is that you uh, they are vulnerable they have no food to eat or they have uh, no resources and then they are doing it because they have no choice if they had a choice they wouldn't do it in the first place and then you take full advantage of that vulnerability and say that they are doing it out of choice i mean yeah even i am perplexed you know i have no answers what do you think the uh, response has been of the government just sitting here i was like you can send fleets of aircraft to get people back from abroad which is great like thank you for doing that but you can send buses for people to send them home you can't you don't and you don't and you're asking them to pay it was just confusing to me that more than half of your population lives in a certain way and you didn't think about that you didn't think about what would happen to over 200 million people answer is positive answer is positive they didn't they don't they didn't think about it they don't want to think about it they don't want to acknowledge that uh, 450 million families people actually are migrants internal migrants like you know it you could be going to the next district or the next state where whatever third one third of the population is are migrants in this country so a crisis has to come like this imagine a guy who is secretly smoking or uh, doping and when he's in the hospital everything comes out isn't it you don't he doesn't have to tell but the body tells so it's like the entrails are all out now and uh, they tried see what is the government's response i mean that's what the original question was what has been the government's response see government is going for the optics all governments are like that i think it's a very nature of the state okay i don't want to sound pessimistic that there's no hope in state so they make pompous statements first of all everybody is a hero you know i mean they are all in degrees different from trump trump is the epitome he's the you know <laughs> ক্লাসিক অফ দ্যাট এপিক প্রপোর্শন হি হ্যাজ টেকেন ইট টু দ্যাট লেভেল 
but uh, our Modi is also of a different degree going for the optics and uh, he doesn't uh, as expressive as Trump is. Trump is every day he's doing, he's, he's very ceremonial, symbolic. No, you're not giving money for the migrant workers. You're not giving trains. You're asking them to pay for it. Okay. And then you send fighter pile, fighter planes, uh, dropping this uh, rose petals uh, from Kashmir to Kanyakumari, from Dibrugarh to Gujarat. Uh, what is this uh, saying? Um, what um, congratulating the doctors and you give, don't give doctors enough for PPEs. I mean, this is like Upar Sherwani Andar Parishani. I haven't heard this one before, I'll be honest. <laughs> I'm from Hyderabad, you know. <laughs> they wear Sherwanis in Hyderabad? I yeah, 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 they do, they do. Very ceremonial and very pompous. They look grand, they look almost like Nizam. But you know, something doesn't fade because you don't wear it every day. Something doesn't fade. So both parishani hoti hai. It just seems like a little counterintuitive because you have to win again, right? Like you can drop as many rose petals as you want, but people aren't going to fill their tummies with the smell of gulabs, you know? So like if you want to win the next election, these are the people that you kind of have to bank on. But if you're failing them now, why would they, why would they elect you again? I, I just don't understand those calculations that how these symbolic activities are going to translate into actual votes. We don't know. We don't know. Yeah, it, it, it just seems, it, even if I was a shrewd politician, to simply to get power again, I would do right by the people now. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is what I think a lot of uh, uh, state governments are doing. They are doing concrete things like, you know, you are a migrant worker from Assam in uh, different cities. Okay, so we are going to do X, Y, Z. And, but to reach that X, Y, Z, you have to go through 22 hoops, you know. You yeah. have to get your Aadhaar card and then after this, you get the signature of that, this fellow, that fellow. I mean, this construction work, uh, he gets up in the morning, he does his work and he eats and sleeps in the night. You're expecting him to do so much of paperwork? I mean, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Anyway, at the end of the day, uh, the nature of these governments is exposed to those who want to see. And also at the same time, the problem is also exposed for those who want to see. What happens is between classes. Okay, let's take in a very broad way, classes, that are secure, that have economic security and experience that economic security. They live a particular life. Those who are economically insecure, they lead a particular life. Okay. Now, the perceptions of these, uh, how one perceives the other. So if you, if you take the middle class, which is economically secure class, they, dev, they build kind of perceptions about the other class. You know, you call what you call the othering. And then they have uh, wonderful moral justifications of 
why I am like this and why they are like that. Definitely. Okay, I'm not even invoking caste system, mm. which uh, very clearly stated you're born like that, you have to die like that. So the whole, the pro biggest problem we are facing when we are talking about universal basic income, that unconditional basic income, all these perceptions of the middle class that, you know, they're lazy or they, uh, they don't deserve this and everybody has to work very hard and uh, only then no work, no pay. See, all these values and uh, things, these ethical objections people have to unconditional basic income come from a pile of such perceptions you built about the poor. That's what I'm saying, mm -hmm. that poor are not like animals in the zoo. Poverty means in India, the approach has been only to give rice and wheat. But poverty yes. is many things, yes. isn't it? So you calorie, you calories, what is the number of calories you require per day? Oh, 2,200 calories. So 2,200 calories, oh, you dump one kilo of rice, that's enough. Uh, so that's the calculation. Can you believe that? It's worse than the calculations you make in a zoo because to a tiger, you actually give meat but the all the poor is same for you you give them rice or wheat so to reduce a human being to uh, open hungry mouth is a biggest biggest problem but that is suits that suits that's convenient to the class say that you know they they, they, they need food they're hungry they need food period you close your eyes you shut your eyes that's what is normalizing like you said you know it's in india it's like in your face we don't even try to hide our poverty we can't the percentage of poor is such a huge percentage you can't even you don't even want to try <laughs> i wonder if that's a bane or a boon because it's so obvious you're just you're immune to it at some point. You know, what is shocking is that even if you see, your perceptions are very different. You, you see all that and then say, oh, this is, this, you explain it away. Self-Employed Women's Association, and they are based in Madhya Pradesh. So I've been working with them and other NGOs. So I continue to work. And then Seva came up in 2010 with the idea that, uh, look, we have the, the allocations for welfare are increasing yeah but the delivery is so poor so you have something like uh, 20 20 billion dollars every year allocated for the food security program and another 10 billion dollars by the state government so you have a 30 billion dollar allocation each year for our pds system ration uh, system uh, but then the delivery is like, you know, we agree that 30 to 40% leakages is criminal. So then Seva said, being the union of informal workers, uh, they said that let's experiment with cash transfer. And the moment you say cash transfer, you have a thousand conditionalities. Then they said, let's, let's do unconditional cash transfer and experiment with it. So that's how the idea yeah. came internally. I thought it was like a foreign project and they approached Sewa, but it was actually an internal idea. Uh, I like, uh, you know, Guy Standing was there. Guy Standing, one of the leading uh, uh, advocates of basic income. He has been working with Seva's last 30 years and on and off on social protection. Guy initially was in ILO and then, uh, uh, so that's how he was associated with then. So I think one of the conversations, uh, guy being basic income man, he said that you want to do an unconditional cash transfer, please go ahead. You know. He also didn't want to impose basic income. He never imposed basic income uh, like Seva. So they wanted to try it out. So that's how the experiment in uh, Madhya Pradesh began. So Guy and I were uh, leading the project and um, 
he's an economist and statistician and I'm a econometrician and I'm a sociologist. So I tell the story and he has the numbers. So it's a good combination. So that's how we started this thing. And uh, we came out with a book in 2014 and uh, the report and, um, and then the, the rest is history. And did you guys take it to the government at the local level or did you just publish it for the public? Oh, we have, we involved the government right from the day go. Uh, so we had meetings with the planning commission at that time. This was, was still, the planning commission was there and the government of, uh, I mean, Congress government and then the local Madhya Pradesh government, we have been having. So the whole point is that an NGO or a union is a, is a, is a minuscule in this nation, in this country, or any, for that matter, any country. On scale, it's only the governments that can take up policies, you know, whether it is UBI or any other policy. So all that we can do is to engage with a problem and then come out with a kind of a solution or a way out and then demonstrate that X plus Y is equal to Z, it works, you know? So we can only demonstrate, even today what we are doing, this, uh, this collaboration with the post office and say that individual basic income transfers are possible. You just have to invoke, I mean, carrying people from Secunderabad to Jharkhand is possible if you just ask Indian Railways. So giving, you can send a satellite to Mars or Moon or wherever, but you can't send money to the last man. You can, if you want. You're sending a letter to him. If you want to arrest somebody, you can send a warrant to him in a remote village, but you can't send him thousand rupees. So we have demonstrating that you can send. We have done that. I'll share that material and experience with you. Uh, so that's what the Seva was also trying to do, the demonstrate that uh, cash transfers, unconditional cash transfers or basic income, it can work. It will, it does work. In the nine villages, like 6,000 people, we paid a cash transfer for about 18 months and uh, very minutely observed. Uh, we have ethnography, we have statistics, we have so much of data to show it's working. In the villages, it's working. People are more empowered. People are taking better decisions. People are moving away from exploitative sources of employment. People are moving away from ex uh, exploitative uh, moneylenders. I mean, they're making a move. You can see, actually, they're shifting. It's, they travel very small distance, but nonetheless, you can see that there's a slight change, shift of trajectory. I was listening to some of your talks, and I, I really like what you said about it increases your, the way you see the future, your projection of the future. Like you can, yeah. you think longer. And I think that's, I mean, I think the case for universal basic income is pretty much there. So many experiments have been done. Uh, even here it was done and a more conservative government came in place in Ontario and they canceled it. And according yeah, to, Doug. yeah, Doug Ford came and they canceled it. And, you know, all of the signs were pointing in the direction of success. So I think at this point, it's, it's beyond debate whether it works. And, you know, you can, one of my friends listened to my, the, the first one I did on UBN. He was like, why don't you call, you, right now you're calling some people who are on the side of UBI. Can you call mm -hmm. someone who, like an economist who can challenge it? And I am not comfortable doing that because I don't understand numbers and I don't understand tax. It would be a futile conversation to have had with me. But yeah. I did refer them to videos and the FAQ that Scott Santons has. And it's, 
you know, it's like you can have an, have a debate for, for argument's sake, but um, the case for autonomy is there. So I think maybe a decade ago when the conversation, or two decades ago, because this has been going on for a long time, like it was still worth it to have a conversation about tax and how are you going to distribute it? And like, isn't it better to give subsidies? And isn't it better to have so other social security forms? But what better time than now when there are so many social security systems in place, yet people have fallen through the cracks? So, Sarah, before we jump into the conversation around UBI, which I think has mostly been from the point of view of the more developed world, can I ask you to contextualize where UBI stands in relation to India while commenting on the, the stark inequality and the kind of poverty that exists in India? Well, I think uh, it's a short period in terms of time, but I think it's a long story. Uh, I won't go into the details of the story. Um, like, I think um, since 2008, there has been a discussion in India about uh, cash transfers and uh, a critical examination of the subsidy culture in India, in the sense that, you know, you, sub you give subsidized fertilizer, you give subsidized food, you give sub everything practically. So you remember the cooking gas uh, was also subsidized, you know, now they have changed the system. It's a very uh, critical turning point. What happened was there are two, three things happened. One is that in 2011 onwards, uh, Seva started this pilot project in Madhya Pradesh to give 6,000 people in nine villages an unconditional cash transfer or unconditional basic income and then try to see if uh, they were the same was looking at it uh, from the perspective of the delivery of welfare that delivery was inefficient so let's uh, make it more efficient uh, is giving cash a better option than sending rice which goes uh, from maybe Punjab to somewhere or wheat going from one state. So you, you have Food Corporation of India procuring from different states and then distributing, you know, they have this mm -hmm. job. So uh, the kind of the, one of the, uh, the analysis was that, you know, the both from the point of view of the quantity and the quality of the in-kind transfers that in India we are used to have been very poor. The history of delivery has been very poor, both quantity wise and the quality wise. You know, mm -hmm. you get rotten rice, you get very low quality wheat. And at the, at the level of procurement itself, there have been very interesting journalists who have actually tracked that how it is not during the storage that this wheat rots, but it is uh, at the time of procurement itself Oh, yeah, this is ration procurement. Hai. So mm. you can dump any rubbish. Yeah. It's like, you know, you, you never give freshly cooked food to the beggar. <laughs> you always have to find yesterday's leftovers because that's what he deserves, you know. So it's the same kind of mentality. So, so what happened is that uh, the public distribution or in-kind transfers have always suffered these Problem. So it is that view that, you know, our members are complaining that they're not getting properly rice properly, wheat properly, blah, blah, blah. Is it possible that we cut all the administrative cost and then give cash to people, which will definitely be more? So there was a, within the government, there has been a lot of discussion on this. Uh, economists have been writing about it. And then there is a, this study which came out in 2015, uh, very clearly saying that giving cash is better. Mm -hmm. And um, 
majority, 97% of the people know how to use it positively. There could be a small percentage which may not be using it properly. So that anyway, uh, compared to the 40% leakages, I think two, 3% natural error is, uh, is not at all a problem. So all this, and then suddenly in 2017, former chief economic advisor decided in 2016 itself, he formed a small uh, committee to discuss uh, universal basic income. You know that every year there is an economic survey that is published uh, by the government of India and there are two parts to it. One part is to reflect on last year's review of different sectors and second part two is a future perspective on different uh, sectors of the economy. So in that he wanted to write a full chapter on universal basic income. So that is when we were like hot with our findings, you know, so we just jumped in and said that Arvind Subramaniam was the man. We jumped in and said that we have the data, we want to come and contribute. So he was very open and he discussed and we part of, we participated, we contributed to that chapter. And uh, it was a very good, um, I mean, good um, uh, positive feeling we had when we were talking to him. And this was presented in the parliament 2017. Government of India came out with a chapter in one of, in their economic survey saying universal basic income, should we think of universal basic income as a potential policy option for India? Is that the way we should go? So a positive okay. turn, okay. Absolutely. So it came from the government. We were there as from the civil society. There's a scientific study and uh, there has been an ongoing discussion. And there was one thing that happened between, I think, uh, maybe 20, 13, 14, I, that, during that period. One is that government was trying to do this, convert the subsidies into cash. So cooking gas in India, we have this cooking gas is subsidized, heavily subsidized. What government was doing was to subsidize the oil company. So mm -hmm. they say this amount of subsidy to oil company so that you keep the prices low, okay? By this time, maybe between 2010 and 15, I think, by this time, private, many private companies had already come, oil companies, like Reliance was in the game and I think others were there. Now they said, we will not subsidize you. We will subsidize the customer, end customer. You price it according to your calculations. We don't care. You make it 700 rupees or 1,000 rupees. We will give the uh, subsidy directly to the. So people were asked that you integrate your Aadhaar card with um, your ration card and then uh, so that and also bank account so that we put the money in the bank. Mm -hmm. So this they gave different um, different uh, deadlines. And as usual extended the deadlines and then finally one day they said that after this no. And they have also reduced the quantity you can take. Okay, nine or 12 in a year or things like that. With these measures. The companies were forced to become efficient. They had to put their house in order. And with this directly giving to the consumer, uh, government actually claimed that we have we are saving something like 15,000 crores every year, wow. which is a lot of money. The point is not about savings. The point is that you're actually making the system efficient. You're removing the inefficiencies. You're removing the uh, bugs from the system, or mm -hmm. you're also removing the corruption. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, that became an incentive to the government. So they said, okay, what we have done with the cooking gas, shall we do it with fertilizer? Shall we do it with food? Shall we do it with all other subsidies? Why are we wasting so much of our resource 
They you know, start uh, subsidizing the companies, but you keep subsidizing the customer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, for example, um, central government subsidizes rice and sells it to the state government at the cost of something like nine rupees a kilo, whatever they have spent. They sell to the state government, to like Telangana government, mm -hmm. to nine rupees a kilo. The Telangana government put eight, puts eight rupees into it, subsidy, and sells it for one rupee a kilo. That's where the billions are going. And Food Corporation of India, which is this government of India establishment, they do the procurement first from the farmers and distribute to the poor. That's the formula. But then government thought that this is a very inefficient way of doing it. Why don't we give just money to people, let them go and buy it in the open market? But then food part became very controversial because of several things, you know. If you decide to give like 100 rupees to per family or 200 rupees per family and not take into account inflation, then the fellow is getting 200 rupees. Today we'll get uh, eight kilos of rice and maybe tomorrow he may get three kilos of rice if you don't inflation index it. If you don't index it to the inflation because of that controversy and because of the national food security act which was passed in 2013 during that same period that uh, converting the food subsidy into cash subsidized food grains into cash did not materialize mm. and um, there also critics who said that no i find numbers a bit sketchy when it comes to talking about poverty because you know first of all i think the poverty line is so low but just just to play devil's advocate what how would you respond to critics who who said that you know it is these subsidies and these like cash uh, these ration transfers that have lifted uh some like two three hundred million people out of the poverty level in the past decade in india india has hundreds of subsidy programs and we spend a lot of money on it but in the past decade we see that consistently more and more people have been able to crawl out and go into the middle class. That's a problem. You know, I have a very serious problem with the very definition of poverty. That they, how do they measure poverty and what is the poverty line in India? It is, uh, it is the, they calculate the per capita consumer expenditure. If you per capita is, if you as an individual, on an average, you spend half a dollar in a rural area per day, a dollar is 35 36 rupees in a day uh, for your various needs and less than that if you spend less than half a dollar a day and in the case of the urban uh, people if it is a little, a little more 45 rupees which is maybe a dollar and a half no 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 uh, three three-fourths of a dollar you spend less than that then you are poor this is calculated based on uh, 2200 calories that is required to survive as a human being uh, i was the, the zoo analogy i gave you uh, to survive as a dog the dog needs like you know 400 calories so if the dog is poor if the dog cannot even get that 400 calorie food on the streets there are mm. poor dogs there are rich dogs so, you know you can just extend yeah. that analogy so there is a serious problem the problem is that in these calculations, it's like we're the, the, the vision of a human life is apparently only it stops at the consumption of food. You That's know? all. That's all. That's all. Poverty is about being in debt. Poverty is about hum getting humiliated every day. 
poverty is about, uh, so don't call it poverty. You say, you, let's start using the word deprivation. If your child is deprived of education, you're poor. If your mother is deprived of uh, medicine or healthcare, you're poor. If your wife cannot deliver under safe uh, circumstances, you're poor. So let's talk about different forms of deprivation, which also include, which will also include deprivation of your dignity, deprivation of your freedom, your liberty, so on and so forth. So uh, by using the term poverty in that kind of very narrow calorie sense, you are actually misleading. Uh, so everything about those statistics is definitely misleading because it doesn't, it's, it's not even a shadow of what you're trying to measure. You know, you take an x-ray to understand what is happening in your chest. It's, it's, an x-ray is not a photograph. X-ray gives you a broad picture of where are the dark spots and where normally it should be white and this is dark. So you have an estimation of what's going on inside. So our, our poverty uh, statistics or measurements are absolutely untrustworthy. I wouldn't take that at all. You have three-fourths of the 60, more than 60% of the population in this country living in the rural areas. And in rural areas, what is there? Agriculture is no longer, no longer a viable occupation, a livelihood option for people. That's why one-third of the population in this country is out, on, out as migrants. You know, today with the COVID system, they all want to go back home because there's no job. When mm. I don't have work, what do I do here? I'm hungry. So, so the, the, there's a problem with the poverty statistics. And so when you, but it, it suits, it suits it the governments be. to show where we are going up and we are coming down, we are mm. going up, we are coming down. I mean, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't subscribe to that at all. I mean, I, and, I, I'm with uh, you. I've been working in the rural areas for uh, last 20, 25 years. I think this is this is where you know that your joke of giving the economist gallies comes in because they love numbers, you know, <laughs> they love numbers. But as a sociologist, you look at the the quality of life, yeah. and it, maybe people have been lifted out of poverty because they're able to buy like two extra packets of biscuits. But, yeah. but economists, yeah. they they love numbers. So I'm with you yeah. that it is flawed, and Absolutely. it doesn't take a genius to figure out that. Absolutely. Very few people are being lifted out of their current state of survival. But those measurements of lifted from what? The critique is very clear. So the subsidies is a problem. The subsidies is a problem because of the leakages at various points and the misuse of subsidies. So we need to, so whether you, whether you belong to this camp or that camp doesn't matter. I think as a, as a citizen, I would like to question the systems and that system that doesn't work has to be discarded and look for innovative ways of dealing with a problem. You know, so that's my job as a sociologist. My job is also systems to create a system that works for people. So I interrupted you there, but Arvind Subramaniam printed a page in his economic review about UBI. I believe in 2019 also... Rahul Gandhi had also posed this idea of cash, direct cash transfer. Yeah, the trajectory has been, I think he, I think um, when, <clears throat> see, it's one thing to do a scientific study. It's another thing to get the political purchase for an idea, you know? So 
we did the scientific study, which was solid and which is uh, like uh, statistical data was there, qualitative data was there, all that was available. The thousand page report was also there and the 200 page book was also available. Now it required uh, the political establishment to take ownership of the idea. It happened with Arvind Subramaniam. Now with that, Another thing got coincided was 2016 was uh, the referendum in Switzerland. Uh, there was a huge referendum in Switzerland in 2016, June. So that gave a kind of a global uh, visibility to the idea. And then uh, so slowly people started writing about it, or people outside our, science, our research team. In know? India. In India. In India. Because... Uh, once uh, something happens, uh, such a huge event has happened there. So some politicians started writing in very interestingly, and uh, uh, it was uh, Warren Gandhi was the first one to write. I distinctly remember he was the first politician to write about uh, basic income, universal basic income in one of the Indian newspapers. Anyway, so um, it this was presented, but that gave a big push to the um, to the concept, to the idea itself. Uh, and then a lot of people started commenting on it. Somebody called it, it's a lazy option. Somebody called it, it's a very irresponsible thing to do. Somebody said, um, um, these are all economists. So somebody said that uh, uh, this is a sellout to the neoliberal agenda. Uh, this is an idea coming from the neoliberal thinking. And somebody said that this is the only way you can uh, solve problems in India. Things like that, you know, because the conditionalities and... Um, uh, 10 inspectors looking, watching this guy, whether he's really deserving or not, is not a good approach. We have done it for 60 years, blah, blah, blah. So it opened up the debate in India. And uh, suddenly there was also curiosity about uh, what is this study that you have done in Madhya Pradesh, you know. Uh, so a lot of people, a lot of people started writing about it and all that. But um, popular journalism is like, you know, it's like froth on the beer. You know, <laughs> either you drink it or it fizzles out. <laughs> I know, <laughs> but when you drink it, you know, it's just gas. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't mean to give gallies to this, but then see, suddenly you? there will be four articles, and after that, complete silence. You know, so um, then what happened was uh, in 2019. The big election was coming and that big election um, two things happened uh, in fact I think there are pieces I have written these stories this full narrative of what actually where it started and all that in fact we have a we have a annotated bibliography of uh, the great India debate I can send you a soft copy yes I think I Vanya, read that by Vanya Mehta, Vanya Mehta. Uh, on one state my state Telangana state in 2018 2018 January introduced a program for farmers called Right to Bandhu. Very interestingly, see, this is what happened. This is what I really like about all the time talking about an idea. When it's going to be picked up by whom we don't know. So this state announced a program for the farmers because the, the entire farming community was in distress at that time because of indebtedness, because of uh, um, not getting the right price for the farm, blah, all these issues. The entire farming sector before the ele general elections was in distress. Uh, 
So in 2018, this government came out with a scheme called Raitubandhu, which is an unconditional cash transfer to all the farmers. It is universal. It was also unconditional. It doesn't say that only when you cultivate, I'll give you. You know, um, it's like you show me that you are cultivating, then I'll give you. That is a conditionality. So mm -hmm. it was unconditional. They didn't call it uh, a cash transfer, unconditional cash transfer, or a basic income, or farmer's basic income, nothing like that. They called it investment incentive scheme for farmers. Okay. And also, this state is also known for farmer suicides last 15 years. I mean, one of the highest suicides have taken place in the farming community in the AP, Andhra Pradesh, which was like now be divided into two states. Now, they came out with this uh, thing. And in December 2018, they had an election. And they had a landslide victory. Massive victory. Mm -hmm. To the point that today, they and they are in 110... 110 or 116, they have nearly more than 100 seats along with their friends. Massive. It's a massive victory. And a lot of, lot of analysis points to this program. They also gave a farmer's insurance scheme along with this. So it was a 10,000 rupees unconditional cash transfer per acre. So if you are like um, five acre or 10 acres, you just got it in your, in your bank account. And there have been no complaints about it, that I have not received it, I have not had a problem. It was well done because the land records are all digitized in this state. Mm -hmm. Now, that kind of was an explosion in the electoral, political, public square. Everybody started seeing, wow, this seems to be something. This may, you know? Yes. You know? So you eat the mango and you sell the uh, seed, this uh, uh, seed of the arm. So uh, you are also... Just, just if I'm being skeptical of the political system, do you think the explosion was because, oh, look, like we had, there seems to be the silver bullet to, to cure farmer suicide, you know? Or was it that, okay, this is what's going to get us the next election? Well, see, unfortunately, um, the two birds, one stone. I life think. is like a thali, you know, not a thali. Life is like, you know, it has everything together. You can't choose only the good part, you know, electoral politics. We have our emancipation is based on democracy and democracy is based on electoral politics. So without electoral politics, Fair. you can't have the, whatever democracy we have. So the path is very narrow and difficult but so that's what we have otherwise you have dictatorship so yeah. so um unfortunately you have to deal with political parties and political parties have a way of uh, doing their thing not always uh, you like it but you have to deal with it it's a necessary evil Hopefully, okay sometimes it results in your benefit and then yeah you take it yeah okay yeah, so it's a necessary evil and uh, you can't help it and uh, you have to deal with political parties eyeing uh, votes. They have to, that's, uh, that's, that's what they do. Mm -hmm. But within that is some good possible. <laughs> that's, what, that's where our hope lies. Otherwise, there is absolutely no hope, you know. Uh, so we are operating on that uh, kind of a very limited scope of uh, 
potential hope. <laughs> so yeah. we just can't help it. So they do that. They also do this. It's, we can't essentialize the parties as only doing that. But they also, so here was the, why I said Aam Kaam, Gutli Kadam. They said, okay, you're also addressing concretely the farming community, which is the, one of the largest uh, communities in any state. Okay. And then you're injecting cash into their system in a systematic way. You know, in universal basic income debate, we talk about periodic is one important principle. One-time grant is not universal basic mm. income. One time, it has to be periodical. It has to be monthly. It has to be continuous. It has to be for lifetime. So that's the principle. So they, it is periodic. It is universal within a uh, particular domain. And it is unconditional that it is not uh, uh, depending on whether you're cultivating or not. Okay, so this became, I'm coming point to that 2018 part, it, it, that was like uh, five states immediately came up with their solutions, their own, their own uh, replicas of this program, because they saw the, they saw the electoral efficacy of uh, this idea. Um, but, uh, but it is possible that sometimes parties can win elections only on gas, only on like symbolic things between one community, hatred between one community and another community, which doesn't get anything to anybody. Uh, compared to that, we have moved one level because a farmer and then a large percentage of farmers are small farmers. It's only a small percentage which has huge land holdings, which means that uh, you had about 5.6 million farmers actually got cash and they continue to get cash. And they also got uh, insurance. In fact, this is one of the few or probably the only in the world where it's also insured against suicide. Wow. So um, I must check that, but I think uh, this is probably the only. So that was, that is innovation in my view. Yeah. This, is, this is innovation, definitely. And if you compare food production, uh, land, uh, land use um, uh, from that, 2017, 2015 to now, there's a huge increase in food production. So this unconditional money, are people taking it and sleeping, drinking it away? What? They seem to be cultivating. <laughs> yeah. They seem to be cultivating. They cultivate more. So, but I mean, we have to see the concrete results on the ground. Anyway, so then came 2019, the big year for general elections in May and smaller elections in uh, like, you know, Sikkim and other states. So in Sikkim was the first state as part of its electoral manifesto, they announced we want to implement a universal basic income in Sikkim for all the 600,000 people. This is the classical, the classic universal basic income, yeah. UBI. Everybody gets it, rich mm -hmm. and poor get it. It was also what we did in our experiment. The richest farmer got it and the poorest laborer got it. That was probably the first politician who actually announced as an, as an election manifesto. Then in February or March, uh, Rahul Gandhi also, February, Rahul Gandhi also came out with his plan of NIAI, uh, the minimum income guarantee for uh, the 40% or 30% uh, of the population. Not so what, what happened in Sikkim though? What was the... The was problem is they lost the election. The party which proposed universal basic income lost the election by two seats or something like that. You know. Okay, then interesting. Some other party got, but they were, they were, the party was in power for six times. 
And do you know yes. whether, was there excitement about this policy? Do you, do you have any idea about that in Sikkim? You mean among, yeah, 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 yeah. Within Sikkim there was, but I think there was so much of anti-incumbency, I don't know, um, 30 years, the same prime chief minister has been there. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, there's always, you know, in a situation like that, there is always the uh, other parties have an edge because they promise new things and things like that, you know. Yeah. So um, there was a lot of excitement in India when that announcement came. And then Rahul Gandhi uh, came and the last minute he came before people could understand when they were going to the polls. Uh, they couldn't really comprehend that. Is it really true that you give money without the conditions? He proposed like, you know, 12,000 rupees or per, per, per family uh, per annum or 7,000, 72,000 rupees. I'm not exactly 72,000 rupees per annum per family they were proposing, which was pretty decent. Mm. Um, uh, I mean, going by all the standards, you know, but they wanted to target it and how you target it. You know, they just, they just came out with a quick uh, electoral banner but it didn't click with the population, with the voters. So it didn't work. And then including BJP came out with PM Kisan after this, they came out with a program called PM Kisan and then said that, you know, uh, you will get uh, unconditional money. Farmers will get this much of money. It was very small amount of money, heavily targeted, blah, 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 and all that. So it's a maze. It's only, you can cut the bullshit only through unconditional and universal. Yeah. But I, tell me, tell me this. In India, I suppose that universal basic income won't be universal to start off with. In India's case, we have, you know, we have a large chunk of the population, as we know, that lives, lives in poverty. They don't have access to proper health, proper education, proper food, proper nutrition, and the multi-dimensional aspect of poverty is, is high in a lot of people's lives. But then we also have a huge chunk of the population um, that is very young, very aspirational. They are living in a middle-class setting and they are slowly but surely climbing up the ladder and they can also do with a good economic push. But I suspect that for a long time, um, policies in India will be targeted for the poor because they are the vote bank. So how do we reconcile this where we have people on all sides of the spectrum who could do with that economic push? Well, um, I won't rule out a universal in India um, because we have to look beyond the current disposition. Like, you know, uh, the way we look at, at our resources, how we manage and handle our resources, the way we actually manage the current um, economy, uh, what are the different elements in the economy? Look, uh, a man goes to a priest and uh, says, I want to go to heaven. Now, uh, tell me, uh, how can I go to heaven? You seem to be the best consultant on that issue. Uh, but one, on, I will listen to whatever you say on one condition that I am not going to change my life, ways of my life and my lifestyle at all. Don't ask me to change anything, but tell me the formula to go to heaven. <laughs> so what do you think the priest will say? 
he'll take simply throw him out so the whole the whole point is if you want an emancipation of the lost man if that is our goal we can't take the current disposition for granted and say this is constant now you give me ideas that's mm -hmm. not possible we have to reorganize our economy now the problem see giving everybody and clawing it back from the rich is not at all a problem yeah taxes there for a reason. okay so you can you can instead of having an inclusion criteria which means who should i uh, pay the basic income you can have an exclusion criteria who should i not pay okay or pay everyone and claw it back through your taxation that's the simplest thing there are many advantages to that and also uh, and also um, like what they did in uh, like for example we have universal cooking gas subsidy it's universal even mukesh ambani can get subsidy oh really yes i actually universal. didn't know that i thought it was targeted it's, no 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 it's not targeted universal cooking gas is uh, subsidized cooking gas is universal in india and early part of the public distribution system was also universal people may not have used it but it's universal every citizen was entitled to this uh, subsidized rations in the past but then slowly slowly it became targeted so the point is that it's much simpler to give everybody and disincentivize some people not to take it like the way cooking gas they they made these shifts I, I, which i described earlier and then the prime minister goes um, online and requests people please give it up you can also make an appeal for universal basic income said so though if you don't need it don't take it it will go to somebody else. no there are ways we have already done those things we can do it we can do it but they have not changed they have not made cooking gas targeted it's still universal so the point is that you have to also i will just add one more thing you also have to take into account like there is an ngo in goa called goa foundation they are working on the mines on the contracts you give to the mines and they went into all the accounts how the mine con mining contracts are given and how the accounts are maintained and in the government how the records are maintained about all this and then they came, they went to the supreme court and said that they got an order in favor in favorable to their movement saying that um, people are the owners of natural resources and government is a custodian a trustee which means uh, if that is the relationship then an owner has a right to ask the custodian saying how are you managing my uh, wealth so um, it's a very interesting um, work they have done in terms of how government treats the mining resources mining projects which is like um, wealth for the future generations do we extract everything now and leave our future generations without anything or we keep it for the future generations those are the questions we have to ask ourselves similarly you have many other commons which are not necessarily owned by anyone by people which are owned by people these are the commons so we have completely forgotten the commons we have made private inheritance uh, as if it is an extension of nature as if it was naturally endowed and public inheritance was thrown out we don't talk about public inheritance so we need to start a new language grammar of ownership not the current 
So we have to make many changes in order to move in the direction of universal unconditional. We can't say everything remains the same and uh, you just suggest anything good out of from this. That's not done. That's not possible. You have to take everything into account, all the money that you have in your account. When you are getting your daughter married, you, you, you put all your money where all the sources are, you know, you extract and then say that, okay, this much we have, this much we have, we borrow from here, blah, 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 and all that you do. So similar kind of an exercise is necessary as a society, we need to do it. And if you want me to be pragmatic and give practical solutions, I'm not interested in that at all. I want to be a visionary for the next 50 years. How, in what direction we should go? We can't continue like the way we are doing because we are also arriving, or not already arrived at an ecological crisis. Unless we mend our ways, I think we are actually going to see a problem. Definitely. And if this way of functioning was working, then we would have seen more drastic changes than the ones that we have seen. But there are lots of, when you mentioned the mining project, for example, I mean, that's kind of what Norway I did, I suppose, that they, they realized that, okay, we have oil at our hands. It's yeah. not going to, it's not going to be there forever. Let's make sure that everyone gets an equal share of the pie. And, you know, the fabric in India is slightly competitive because there are so many people and we have finite resources, jobs, etc. So the fabric is pretty competitive, but I can imagine, I want to imagine how something as collective as a UBI would change or alter that, that fabric of individuality that comes with uh, the neoliberal structure that we do live in because you're running for profit. But what I do want to ask you is that, you know, we, we were talking about this, that poverty is deprivation and it's deprivation of a mul multitude of things and including education, nutrition, health. You said, are women able to give birth in proper circumstances? How long are children living, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a multitude of problems. Now, if, I think it would be naive to say a universal basic income would be a silver bullet to tackling mu mu much of these problems in India. Or number one, I think I want to ask you is like, what is the opportunity cost of implementing a universal basic income? Do we have to let go of something? Do we have to let go of quality of infrastructure, for example? And then number two, what does it need to be complemented by in order to ensure that people are getting freedom through access to their economics and the way they want to utilize it, but also that they are getting access to other public services that can be provided by the government, such as health and education, et cetera. Yeah, see, basic income, universal basic income is definitely not the uh, ultimate goal. I mean, it's a means to uh, achieving a larger goal of um, a better world, a better society, you know, much more equitable. And uh, at least, uh, let me put it this way, and I don't want to give a long doby list of uh, things that constitute this better world. No, um, a single point of the better world is that we should at least ensure that nobody is deprived of certain very basics. Like, I mean, let's take the example of a woman being able to give birth to her child under safe circumstances can be uh, a very good, uh, um, what do you call, um, uh, test 
of that society. Today, not many women are able to do that because the supply side of the healthcare, the supply side of the education, the supply side is very, very poor. We have to improve the supply side. That's what Amartya Sen also says, that if you, if you don't uh, improve the supply side of healthcare, uh, what is the point? You know, you, you give money to people, they will go to the, these quacks and then uh, every village has quacks. So they will go and spend that money on those fellows who will not cure their illnesses. So that, was, that is probably the only critique he has about universal basic income. He says he agrees that you know, it's necessary in Switzerland, it's necessary in other countries because at the end of the day, it, uh, it gives you freedom to live the way you want to live. Now, given that, uh, you have to acknowledge the fact that we live in a monetary economy. We live in a cash economy. If we were living in a barter system, we will not talk about income mm. at all. Yeah. So why, why do you need I mean, The whole point is that uh, you should not deprive people. Your system that you have, the economy, economic model you have, should not deprive people of... Uh, and if you project the next... 10, 20, 30 years in terms of employment, it's pretty serious. You'll read any of the ILO's, uh, World Bank's, or uh, particularly ILO report, uh, the latest ILO report about jobs. They say very clearly that about two thirds of the global workforce is on temporary contracts or no contracts. Okay, so what are we dealing with? We are dealing with a crisis. There are different types of crises. We are dealing with a crisis of having a welfare system of the 20th century and the problems of the 21st century. Yeah. So the problems of 21st century require the answers of 21st century, not the answers of the 20th century. You know, the post-war, the post-war world had this wonderful uh, golden age of welfare, you know, beverage model and then different welfare economies came and then these economies um, I mean the manufacturing sector was booming and you you know remember in uh, United States or in Europe particularly the manufacturing sector was booming now um, what at that time there were jobs so the ideal so ideal thing at that time was that you get a full-time job the job was for lifetime and then you moved from one position to another position through your promotions. And then you retired. When you retired, you get a pile of money and a pension. And then you go buy a piece of small piece of land and you grow potatoes and you peacefully die. Seems like such an idyllic life. <laughs> that was the utopia of the 21st, 20th century. Yeah. That was the utopia. You'd, you'd retire. But here in 21st century, you live in a gig economy. You have inaugurated gig economy. Evening, morning, you are a Uber driver. Evening, you are a Swiggy deliver, delivery boy. Yeah. So you dabble with two, three jobs. See, university students do this for fun. Their parents are anyway giving, they're paying the fees and accommodation. And you just earn your pocket money by working in a restaurant here and doing this there and maybe all that. But then uh, if you have people, eight people in your family and you have to feed them and you're dabbling with two, three jobs, and in the lockdown, all those jobs are gone. You're dealing with those problems. So what, you, what I think uh, now the word that is used is the precariat. 
most people are living a very precarious existence. They have a job today and they have a, don't have a job tomorrow. And who wants that kind, those kinds of jobs? Okay, that's the one point. The other point is that the, the technology today has advanced to such an extent, the business models, you know, I, I was teaching in a business school and I lasted there as long as I learned about business. So I've learned about business enough to use it for other purposes. So business models today, at that time we were teaching 95, 96, we were teaching of paradigm shift in business models. You know, the whole globalization was happening and you were pushing manufacturing to the China, to China, Vietnam and Taiwan. They were doing all the manufacturing for the world. They were the workshops for the world. So today when you want masks, masks had to come from China and you took a panga with China. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the business model of the 21st century is not to employ anybody permanently. Yeah, and outsource jobs to the to Everything, the outsource, person. outsource everything. And with technology, you can always outsource to the Philippines and get your parts manufactured there and shipped to India or shipped to US or whatever. So that is the kind of uh, and, uh, prospects, employment crisis we are going through and followed by a welfare crisis. We are not addressing that. We have to address that. So given that, you have no choice but to go in for something like this. Mm. Now, then let me add one more point to this, that we have enough wealth. Enough I was actually curious, curious about that because to my knowledge, like very few people in what 10% of the population pays taxes in India. So less. yeah, it's, it would be an exaggerated thing to say 10%. So yeah, speak to that a bit. But you're talking about direct income tax. Yes. In, indirect taxes, everybody pays. That's true. Yeah? Yeah. My construction worker, when he goes to a supermarket and buys a, a packet of biscuits, number of taxes he's mm. paying is huge. Now, when you go and the con same construction worker goes and buys a bottle of liquor in Patiala, you know how much tax he's paying? How much? 320%. Oh, wow. Because actually all the liquor is so cheap that you can actually distribute it free. <laughs> but because there are rent seekers, the state is seeking rent and somebody else is seeking rent. All the rent seekers are there that this man, instead of paying 10 rupees, he pays 90 rupees. Anyway, that's, that itself is a Pandora box. You can open that or you don't want to open that. <laughs> <laughs> we can get drunk on that right now. <laughs> so we, uh, everybody pays tax and uh, everybody gets underpaid. So you have your maths there. Uh, so the point is, the point is that not just in the world, in the world, of course, we have wealth, which can be given. In, the, in India, we have wealth. Take, for instance, data. The data that we provide to all these companies should be monetized. People should be paid should be paid uh, for what they are contributing. I put, when I be in between, whenever I have free time, I take pictures and I upload it to Google Maps. They don't pay me a penny. Yeah. And then they feel happy that they are giving me an opportunity to showcase my pictures. <laughs> That's definitely a, a, you know, a debate worth having as we go into, not even the future, as we live now. This is a debate worth having. And Andrew Yang, we know, popularize this but yeah it's it's again going back to what what's our stake and share in all of this yeah so uh andrew yang's best contribution was he said that how much do you think he asks everybody you know he goes to 
somewhere and then he says that how much do you think amazon has paid how much tax do you think amazon has paid uh, american government and he said zero so his uh, his argument he coming from the corporate uh, you know world he says that we have incentivized our accountants based on how much tax they can save our accountants job is that a company should not pay a tax if they begin to pay a tax if they start paying the tax properly i think we have enough lot of money now why don't we why don't we raise those questions yeah you know you and i were talking and it, we we have established that at least in this conversation and i think you know anyone who does their research on ubi the question most of the questions are answered that it that it is possible and you know it, it's only utopia till it's done but i think the wheels are getting greased and now you know we are increasingly talking more about how much wealth billionaires have and how you know governments and billionaires are walking hand in hand and you know each is for the other so these questions are getting raised and i think the more awareness and information we can spread about a policy that clearly that's caught the eye of the world leaders from i mentioned sturgeon but spain is also rolling it out i would like to come to brazil to you because i think brazil and india have so many similarities if i'm not mistaken i think maybe venezuela is also experimenting with a um a form of ubi at the moment but i don't want to i'm not sure i don't want to be taken to court on that you know we have the answers there that it is possible to to successfully have a ubi but it's the nuts and bolts and whether leaders are 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 going to get on it and and make it happen and whether people are going to push for these policies given that the awareness is there um again i go back to the fact that we have so many you know india is such a young country like you know it's you look around and we see mostly young people highly aspirational highly ambitious so what do you think this will do to the innovative part of our economy entrepreneurs and also do you think that it will help create more wealth because they say that as you give wealth to poor people they tend to spend it more than those who already are sitting on a lot of wealth see um i think uh, what we are talking about um, we should be very clear um, when we make these comparisons like uh, let me give uh, there are five sometimes six very core characteristics to ubi one is it is universal everybody gets it second is everybody within a given territory number two is individual it's not household as opposed to household it's periodic as opposed to one time grant and it is um, it's universal it's individual it's uh, periodic and it's only cash and not coupons or uh, things like that no and uh, most important the real cutting edge of this concept is unconditional and some people add uh, but that is optional these are the five core characteristics in europe they add high enough as a component and some other people add a right for lifetime that it cannot be taken away by a new government so doug ford can't come and say that you know okay guys you've had fun now the fun is over i'm going to create a new thing so it should not be like that it should be inflation index blah 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 so 
um, when you have, there's a difference between a cash transfer and a basic income. And because anything is a cash transfer, when your dad or when your sister sends money to you, it's a cash transfer. Okay. And if it's your sister, it most probably it's unconditional. Mm -hmm. So that's also a cash transfer. So let's separate the apples and oranges and say, now Malawi has announced $32 per person uh, during this COVID crisis. So it's a kind of a, an emergency cash transfer. And uh, many disaster, during several disasters, one of the disaster response has been to give cash to people. So there have been cash transfers all along. But when we say basic income, we are actually talking about something very different. So it has to be unconditional. It has to be all, all these five. It has to satisfy all the five tests. So like Bolsa Familia had um, Brazil coming to Brazil. Uh, so even India also, like, for example, uh, students get scholarships. That's individual. That's uh, but conditional. Yeah, it's fine. You know, blah, blah, blah. All that. So old people get uh, pension, but that's also conditional. So uh, you, can, you can examine all kinds of transfers and then put your finger and say that this is basic income, but this is not basic income. But then there could be a step towards basic income. The trajectory may be towards a basic income. Okay, so whether it is happening in Kenya or Malawi or Spain, we have yet to see the details of what they're planning to do. Uh, so, but everything goes under the umbrella of UBI. We have to discern uh, what is, what, what are they talking about? Where is this coming from? And so saving on subsidies is also not basic income. It's just converting uh, poli one policy into another uh, so that because it's administratively more convenient, but then tomorrow something else is more convenient, you'll shift to that. So the primary thing there is not about giving this cash to people. The objective is convenience, administrative convenience. So even as we participate in those conversations, we participate as a network in India, we participate in conversations with everyone, particularly with skeptics. But the point doesn't, that doesn't mean that we agree with them. The whole point is our objective is to participate. So we, we have to discern, we have to make the distinction between what is a basic income and what is not a basic income. Because you can, you can, you can point to a wrong thing and say that, you know, uh, this is not working. So can you talk about what happened in Brazil now that we have the terminology in place that is not a UBI, it's a temporary UBI. But I think because you're part of that network and Brazil and India have some commonalities in, in terms of income inequality, at least, and, you know, um, yeah. government yeah. is a bit different. But what are your thoughts on that? If it's happening in a country like Brazil, then certainly can happen in a country like India. I'm actually not sure. Have they announced something in Brazil apart from Bolsa Familia? Yeah, Bolsa Familia, about I think $600 per family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a Bolsa, Bolsa Familia. Actually, um, Eduardo Suplicy was um, a politician who was a strong advocate of, uh, from the Labour Workers' Party, a mm -hmm. uh, strong advocate of uh, universal basic income. I think he must be now 85, 80 years. He's still one of the council members in Sao Paulo. And when Lula was uh, the president, I think um, they wanted to introduce universal basic income, actually. But then as a compromise, they because the middle class is not yet ready for a concept as radical as that. And in their constitution, they wrote very clearly 
uh, that uh, in the, I think the, the, the Bolsa Familia law very clearly says that this is the first step towards universal basic income. So this is targeted. And uh, this is, uh, I guess, so-called soft conditionalities that you don't go strictly by that, that the children should attend, uh, attendance should be like 84% or blah, 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 and all that, those things are there. But uh, um, it is unconditional money to families. And I think there's huge literature show, showing the positive effect of uh, Bolsa Familia also. Now, like I said, compare, come back to India, uh, like I said, you know, we are longer society. So, bachonko do pehar ko khana denge ham, or garbhoti mahilaon ko ham puriya denge, powder denge, do khana mein mila ke khayenge, or kishori ladkiyon ko nutrition ka dabba denge. It's all in-kind transfers, you know. Or kya, matlab. And they, we are very fond of giving umbrellas, bicycles, shoes, even uniforms are provided by the government. Saris, in, in, in South India, we give saris. And in UP, they wanted, they gave laptops or mobile phones. Or, um, you know, we want to always give in-kind cash, in-kind transfers. It's a way to keep people indebted. So maybe to keep people in the wow, blah 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 and all that. So apka jo jo mobile phone ayata was similar to life battle gaya. Oh suppose a bake to woo hai or dusrito to apko commission me milte no. So I'm calm, good league dam dono be happy. Dono be milte log be log be up say matlab um up dua mangenge or upke bank account be bharabharega. Yes, multiple things you get. So I think usually politicians prefer those things rather than give cash to people. And also you have very convenient perception of the poor that they don't know how to manage their money. It's a very convenient perception. It suits the perception, suits the ruling classes, chattering classes like us much more than them. It goes against them. So, uh, given that kind of um, welfare grammar that we have in India, to shift to giving money to people is a, is a kind of a leap. And uh, I mean, I said that it has begun. It has begun to happen. That uh, let's give, like we are, we are actually doing a demo that we give cash to people. Because uh, in a time like this, you think, you giving government, what government has announced? Government has announced uh, um, doubling the rations. Instead of six kilos, you give 12 kilos of rice. And the local government here said we will give 1500 rupees also in the bank accounts. And the central government also said we'll give 500 rupees. What is 500 rupees? Uh, a poor family can get uh, by other than rice and wheat groceries for a two weeks or so, uh, but uh, it has never been, we, we, I can sh share that with you, as uh, on 21st, uh, Prime Minister announced a task force of economic response to COVID, and immediately on 22nd, we sent an appeal and proposal uh, to Prime Minister and to the Finance Minister, saying that you have to give an emergency basic income of 4260, per individual and half of it for the child. 
This comes from the World Bank uh, poverty line of $1.9 uh, consumer expenditure. So you calculate from there rather than the Indian poverty line. You calculate from there, then you arrive at 4260 per month per individual. So we came to a conclusion that a family will get about 12,000 rupees uh, per month. If you give them for three months, we said, uh, April, May, and June. But uh, they didn't take that on board and they gave 500 rupees and uh, the local governments gave 1,500 rupees, all that. So um, we still have, we don't have, still have that acceptance, acceptance that uh, if you give cash, uh, people have a better sense of, can you believe we, when, when we are, we know very clearly that maybe two, three percent will cheat you. Maybe five, four percent lelo. Like in 95%, use it for what it is meant to be used for. All evidence points in that direction. So it also gives uh, people autonomy to buy what they want. Lastly, sir, sir, sir let me ask you this. Um, you know, long time UBI advocate, Scott Santins did a um, he did a podcast on UBI in India, and he said that India is closer than any other nation to implementing UBI. And I think he was saying this in reference to the uh, 2019 election. So what are your thoughts on that? A, a big statement there. So what do you think? You know, um, Karl Marx, when he was writing uh, Communist Manifesto, he never, never expected Russia to have the revolution. He expected England will have, but it never happened. And there's no, there's no indication that it will happen even now. In a, a, so that time England. But the thing is that um, it was uh, the way the idea, I agree with uh, Scott, and particularly at that time, the mood was really, now I must say in all fairness, Compared to 2014 and 2020, there has been a huge leap in this uh, perception that it is better to give cash to people than to give rice and wheat. That perception has really, really going mainstream. But still, I think um, as a policy, it's not emerging. But as I said, that farmers think. Uh, is the first step in the unconditionality. Everybody screamed, you know, why should you give the rich farmers? And everybody screamed that why should you not make a condition that they should cultivate? You no, know, this man owning 50 acres is sitting in the United States and he's getting the money. Why should he get that money meant for the poor, blah, blah, blah. But then the point is, you when you are making a system, you you look at the aggregates. If it's working for 96% of the people, it's a very good system. If it's working only for 5%, it's not a good system. If there are 100 leakages of the system, it's not a good system. So the point is that there is some wisdom in, there is, there is a certain even administrative efficacy to the unconditionality. But I'm not coming from there, but governments are coming from there and seeing a point that this seems to be working. This seems to be working better. And do you know there is a, there are government documents which are saying in India that I can send you references if you want that India spends three rupees twenty four paise to deliver one rupee welfare. That one rupee is also not reaching the last mile because 
as I said earlier, 40% leakages, only 60 paisa is reaching, which means conclusion, let's get, you're not, you're not a mathematician, I'm not either. Let's put the math now. So, okay, the last man ultimately is getting 60 paisa, 0.6. And you're allocating 3.25 plus one rupee, 4.25 is what you're allocating. And he's getting 6.6, which is like, which is a crime actually. You allocate to 4.25 and you, the final last mile gets only 0 0.6. It's a crime. So government, in, it, in all its um, innovation, they said, let's do something. You take one rupee. Let's scrap all this. Let's just do cash transfers. I mean, this is a hypothetical mm. uh, game. Okay. So 4. I have 4.25. Allocating 4.25. I will not allocate 4.25. I will allocate three. Put 1.5 in my savings. Put it somewhere else. I have three. You were getting 6.6. I'll give you 1.2, which means you are actually getting the double of what you were getting. And the rest is for me. Yeah. Okay. So it's a win-win situation if you look at it in a theoretically speaking, isn't it? I mean, it's very tempting to do that. Doesn't matter whether it is actually buying him, whether it is inflation index, whether it is for lifetime, and all this is not thought out in this. What we think in, in classic UBI. So there is a shift. I must definitely say, last six years I've observed closely. There's a shift in that direction, from this perspective primarily, but also, also saying that this kind of deprivation cannot continue. We can't survive as a society and become a great power, which everybody wants. Do you see this becoming an election topic in the next cycle? Of course. Otherwise, I would be a big failure. We will be a big failure. We have to take the momentum. And actually, it, it is already there in the political parties. And uh, we are working closely with political parties. There's a lot of currency to the idea. There's a lot of purchase. And um, definitely, it will. It will, uh, it will definitely go there. Because uh, distribution of price, maybe they will do food and cash. We don't know. Because there is a law. But the law also has a clause. National Food Security Act, it also has a clause which says that you can always convert the distribution of food grain into cash. And lastly, Sarath, where do you see all of this? How do you see us coming um, out on the other side of the pandemic? Where do you see India coming out on the other side of the pandemic? At some point it has to end. So where do you think we will be? Well, um, I, I think it's extremely uncertain. Uh, mankind, I'm not very optimistic that mankind learns lessons. Okay. <laughs> After war, have, what, what lessons have we learned? <laughs> yeah. After the Second World War, what lessons have we learned? After the genocide that happened in, uh, during the war, what lessons have we learned from it, you know? There are some good souls which keep writing about them and all that. So there is that skeptical part that there are, everything is out in the open today, but uh, middle class, ruling classes have a way of insulating themselves from all this. Like you were saying in the beginning that, you know, everything is in your face, like poverty is in your face in India. It's an elephant sitting in the drawing room. But uh, you, can, you can get really delusional by not seeing that elephant. Uh, so I am not sure, but I mean, the same thing applies if you interview an environmentalist, environmentalists are pretty happy now today. And Germany is saying that it has already achieved 40% of the climate uh, goals they have by doing nothing. 
I'm very skeptical about that. So the, the point is that even about environment, uh, there can be a kind of an optimistic scenario in the future. But um, pandemic actually uh, exaggerates, not exaggerates, it magnifies what is already there. And it shows you very clearly what kind of a society you are living in and how unequal, how unequal that inequality is. Uh, it hits you in your face. But what lessons we learn from it, I, I, will, I will not say anything about it. It's like a black hole. There's a lot of energy inside the black hole, uh, the other side. But uh, whether it's positive or negative, we don't know. You don't know where we're going to end up once you enter yes. that black hole. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. But you're not sure you know, what's on the other side. But I think some conversations are going to, particularly on basic income, I'm hoping that more people are willing to listen now more people are willing to, because of this kind of a, a raised uh, moral uh, temperature, <laughs> uh, saying that, you know, a lot of suffering there around, you know, maybe universal basic income is a good idea. But then all this may subside and once the temperature is down at normal, maybe life, maybe business as usual, we don't know. Then let's keep our Let's keep our fingers uh, crossed. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Excellent, Sarah. Thanks so much for joining me on the Ants to Mention today. I had so much fun talking to you. Wonderful. Same here. Likewise, I really enjoyed. Okay, it's, uh, it, was, it just went like, you know, water. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was a beautiful conversation. I had so much fun. Thank you. Thank you so much. Arundhati Roy penned a piece recently in the Financial Times. She called it, the pandemic is a portal. She wrote, and I quote, We can choose to walk through it, dragging the carcasses of our past, or walk through lightly, with little luggage, ready to imagine another world. End quote. I may be biased here when I say this. India stands much to gain and much to lose, depending on how we respond to this crisis. And in doing so, what we say about how much or how little we care about the people. Thanks for listening to the third in the series of UBI episodes that I'm doing nowadays. You know the drill. I'm on Twitter at underscore Ns Dimension. Follow, like, comment, share. I would love to hear what you guys are thinking about what quote-unquote a new world order can look like post-COVID-19. So let's share thoughts and exchange information. And as I leave you nowadays. I hope everyone's washing their hands and not touching their faces. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.